The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're going to be talking today about Harvard, idealism, and war with my guest, who I am thrilled to have back on the show. His name is James Carl Nelson. He was um, on the show, I guess, a couple of years ago. You'll have to correct me. I don't know exactly which year it was, but I'm sure it's in the archives still. And at that time, he was talking about his first major book called The Remains of Company D, A Story of the Great War, World War One. Now, um, Jim, welcome to the show, first of all. What, what year was that? It was, it was like two or three years ago, wasn't it? I, I think it was in uh, late 2009, yeah, okay. for, uh, for the remains of Company D, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, um, so it'll be in the archives of uh, Voice America. Um, and from that book, you now have your latest book, new, just released, called Five Lieutenants, The Heartbreaking Story of Five Harvard Men Who Led America to Victory in World War I. Great title, great story, a great true story. I mean, I, I want to make that clear from the beginning. These aren't novels. Um, this, these are. <laughs> this is based upon painstaking research that Jim did. And I want you to tell us about how. Well, first of all, um, remind us of how you what sent you on that um, on that long <laughs> research process, the long hunt for the information that you used to weave the stories for your first book, and then how that led to the second one, because I think that is all so fascinating. So tell, let's start with that. Well, the first book, Remains of Company D, started with a small story that my grandfather told. He had been uh, severely wounded at Soissons on July 19, 1918, uh, by a machine gun bullet laid on the field overnight. It was picked up in the morning. Uh, barely alive by a couple of Algerian stretcher bearers and lived to be 101. So he never really embellished it. He never said anything more about it. And after he died, <clears throat> excuse me, when he was 101 in 1993, I just uh, <clears throat> decided to pick up the thread and just, I don't know, for some reason I just got really interested in it at that point. He wasn't a guy who talked about it a lot. And it was really kind of like you can't really approach someone who's been through someone like that and just say, hey, you know, tell me all the gory details, these kind mm-hmm. of things. And I uh, did a little research. I came up with a muster roll where he was on it. He was missing since recent operations. It was August 1st, 1918. But what struck me was all these names around him on this muster roll that I'd never seen before. He'd certainly never mentioned. And I just, it was a simple question of who were, were these guys and what became of them because so many of them were also listed as missing since recent operations. Uh, so I just started, uh, 
running these names. They were all dead by, by then. Uh, I started about 10 years ago on that project. And uh, contacting relatives, hours and hours on Ancestry.com, running people down, uh, mm-hmm. looking for whatever, basically any, any stories I could get, oral stories, uh, memoirs, letters. Uh, and it took about six years before I finally had, uh, you know, seven or eight strong characters to build the book around, um, mainly from letters that they'd written during the war. Um, and did a lot of research on, uh, it was Company D of the 28th Infantry Regiment of the U.S. First Division. Did a lot of just, you know, uh, research into World War One, which I really knew nothing about. A lot of people don't know anything about it. Yeah. Uh, and the First Division, where it'd been. Uh, and... This company, Company D of the 28th, had fought at a town called Cantini in uh, northern France, and it was the first uh, United States assault of the war on May 28, 1918. And I didn't have enough from the company members themselves to tell the story just by themselves uh, of this battle. It was a three-day battle, and it was fairly horrendous. They took the town, then went about 500 yards east and started digging in on a flat plain under uh, German machine gun fire and artillery fire, within a few minutes, 30% of the company had been cut down, dead or wounded. Um, so to add context and add narrative to this three chapters I did on Cantini, I started uh, looking for more material and more material, and I had noticed that with uh, Company D's own officers, uh, they had very strict censorship, but uh, the key was that the platoon commanders censored their men's mail, but nobody censored their mail. And so very often, uh, these lieutenants were writing home these graphic accounts of battle or, or just daily life uh, in the trenches or back lines. And I said, you know, hey, this is what I really need to concentrate on, is uh, finding more of these lieutenants' letters. Um, and I did uh, find uh, the letters of Richard Newhall. Um, they actually <laughs> appeared... In a book, I don't know why I didn't look at this first, it's called uh, Newhall and Williams College, Selected Papers of a History Teacher of, uh, at a New England College, 1917-1973. Not your most obvious source, but uh-huh. uh, some of Ridge's letters were in there, <clears throat> including um, a, sh- a brief account of this intense friendship he had with a guy named George Haydock, which I thought was fascinating. He was still writing about Haydock uh, in 1973 when, on, uh, when he was about 85 years old. And I thought, you know, that sounds like a fairly touching story. So I kind of centered on those two guys, Haydock and Newhall, <clears throat> as uh, the main core of the book. I was able to get uh, George Haydock's memoir, which had never been published, or wait, his diary. Talking, really. Wait, you, you've moved into the five lieutenants now. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I got <laughs> well, up to there yet. <laughs> well, okay, so well, what I'm trying to show is that five lieutenants grew almost directly from uh, the remains of Company D. Uh, in fact, I used a little bit of snippets from about three of the guys and five lieutenants for uh, the the chapters on Cantini in uh-huh. the remains of Company D. Um, a few of them are mentioned in there fairly briefly, but it's a, it is a natural uh, bookend or, or extension uh, from the remains of Company D to five lieutenants. But it's uh, it's a boring in. It's a much more narrower focus, but. Uh, the richness of the material is is, uh, is really uh, uh, what makes Five Lieutenants what it is, which is just these guys uh, giving a daily account of what's going on. They're Harvard men, and they write well, and they observe well, um, 
but I will go back and talk more about the remains of Company D if you well, want. Well, no, <laughs> no, I just didn't want to get, you know, I just wanted to keep them separate. But, yes, the, you know, the fact that um, as you're telling this now and I'm thinking about it and, and uh, you know, it's, it's and this um, five lieutenants has already been getting great reviews. There's one that appeared uh, January 7th in the Wall Street Journal called they bled crimson, and of course that's a take on the Harvard Crimson, the newspaper at Harvard. I actually went to Harvard for it to take organic chem one summer, oh, <laughs> so I know I that. I know that. Okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, and and it's a fabulous review. Um, I actually put it on some on Facebook, and and I'm going to post it out around. It really does give you. It's a great tease for uh, that makes people want to read. You know your book, the five lieutenants. But so I expect all kinds of great things like a movie and so on to be coming from this. And so talking about how you got started on this whole on the first book which led to the second book, it makes do you ever think, have you ever thought that your grandfather um is has sort of been leading you, you know, from the grave, has been leading you to research his story which then led you to do this five lieutenants book which then is bringing you, um, you know, each book um, more uh, attention, appreciation for your writing and your work. Uh, you know, it is funny. I mean, there, with, with remains, uh, there was yeah. something that that just compelled me to do it. I don't know why. I started it, and it was difficult, as you can imagine. It's difficult to go back to many years. People have been dead that long, um, and and find things, and it was very frustrating. And, I mean, at one point, about midway through, I just said, okay, you know, that's it. I gave it up for about six months. But but something drew me back to it, you know. Um, so, I, you know, and I did want, I felt at, at a certain point, you've been doing it long enough, I felt obligated to tell these guys stories. You know, they, they were everyday guys, all of them, from top to bottom. Um, and certainly to tell my grandfather's story, which he was not uh, very, you know, he was a Swedish immigrant, um, had a seventh, eighth grade education, which doesn't mean he was dumb, but it just means he wasn't that educated, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and with, the, with the language difficulties and this and that, he just did not talk much. He's one of these taciturn Swedes. So I was hoping to, with Remains, tell his story by using the voices of others. But yes, I did feel compelled, and it was just something I couldn't stop, you know, uh, not knowing ever if it would get published, which is a whole nother story. <laughs> it's just too... Uh, Getting published is is half the battle or more. Uh, you can have a great idea, but you got to you know sell it to someone else. But there were little things, and I don't want to sound weird about it, but it seemed like during the process of doing the remains of Company D, every time I looked up, the clock said eleven eleven, which I thought was kind of interesting. Huh. You know, like like Armistice Day kind of thing. Yeah. And I kept you know you want you want to, any signs or any encouragement you can get, you'll take it. You'll read anything and anything, and, and that was one thing that I uh, I noted, and I you know and and ultimately. Um, you know, it was able to get to publication, which really made me happy for him, uh, for the guys, as I'd call them, uh, just to, to, that they don't live in eternal obscurity. You know what I mean? That people will take yes. note of what they did. And, and, and you know, and, and this, it, mine happened to be Company D. It could have been the remains of Company G. I mean, uh, you know what I mean? Right. It could have been any single company in that war. Uh, it just happened to be that he was in Company D of the 28th, um, which turned out, like every company would, all different characters, you know, a third of them are immigrants from all over Europe, uh, came to America, then find themselves back in France, which became mm-hmm. sort of a theme uh, of when I wrote about my grandfather, just sort of like, how did I get back here? I wanted to come to America and mm-hmm. start a new life. So mm-hmm. hoping he'd just get through 
not die so he could go back and pick up his life, which he did, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he became a painting contractor, small time, but, you know, enjoyed a nice life and uh, lived a very long life despite this uh, severely debilitating wound uh, mm-hmm. he had uh, incurred. So, okay, so that's, uh, so the, uh, the final answer to that is yes, you do think that there, you did see signs along the way that your grandfather was kind of leading you to this glory. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't consider it glory. For well, me. I, mean, I mean this achievement yeah. that I yeah, that, it's, an, it's definitely an achievement. I mean, I, I like to look at it that way. I, I, I do feel like it's an achievement, definitely. Well, um, you know, you, you know. mentioned before about how so many people don't know about World War One, and it is true. The more time that goes by, people are, well ha- are having shorter and shorter memories altogether. But I mean, it is like. Um, like these things happened in another world. I mean, right. I, yeah. I mean, yes, of course, it was another world in a sense at that time. But I mean, we 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 it's, we shouldn't be forgetting these things. No, no, we shouldn't be. And you know, what really what happened was World War One settled a few things, but not the big issues. You know, and uh, it, it turned out right after the war. Uh, even in America, it was like, okay, well, whatever that was about, let's just move on, you know. Right. Uh, yeah, and uh, there was one publication said, as at the beginning of 1919, we're not going to run any more war stories here. We're huh? done, you know. Yeah, and um, so then World War Two came along and totally overshadowed World War One and continues to because, mm-hmm. you know, you think about how many World War One movies you can you can count, you know. And think about how many World War II movies there have been. I mean, it's it's a thousand to one, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in, in uh, uh, fiction and in nonfiction as well, there was a spate of books came out after World War II. But you know, generally, kind of hackneyed. Boy, uh, we went out and got them, kind of thing. It's real patriotic kind of stuff. I mean, it doesn't really cut to the core of what really went went on there and what they went through over there. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, the, yeah, it's a, World War One has been overshadowed, but with next year being the hundredth uh, centenary of the beginning of the war, I think there's going to be a renewed interest, and I think there already is with mm, Downton Abbey, mm. War Horse, things like this. Okay, uh, bring, is bringing yes. it back, maybe you know the popular consciousness a little more. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, we need to take a break. Not sure if you heard the music, but um, this is a good point to take a break, and we will be back. My guest is James Carl Nelson. His latest book is called Five Lieutenants, The Heartbreaking Story of Five Harvard Men Who Led America to Victory in World War I. And we'll be back with more. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline 
And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today with James Carl Nelson. He is the author of the just-released book called Five Lieutenants, The Heartbreaking Story of Five Harvard Men Who Led America to Victory in World War I. And um, Jim was giving us a background of how he got um, from his first book, well, from his grandfather to his first book called The Remains of Company D, A Story of the Great War, to this new book. And... Um, and, you know, I'm sure one of the things that people are wondering, scratch their head about, seeing, just seeing the title, is what would Harvard men be doing, or, and it was a lot more than five, as you'll tell us, why would they want to enlist? I mean, comparing it to, to today, it wouldn't be, it's a little different, you know, the, the idea of enlisting, and over the years it's become less romanticized and so on. And so tell us about, well, tell us about how you got to these five men and why, why men like this would be in, scrambling to enlist. Um, yeah, well, um, as I said, I, I got to these guys just by trying to widen the research into the Battle of Cantini um, and uh, came across the papers of Richard Newhall, who was actually from Minneapolis, where I live, uh, which had nothing, just a coincidence. Um, looked at the Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do
and she later became a sort of a early Jungian adherent, whatever you would call it. Um, so he wrote all these letters to her, and they turned out to be preserved in her papers at Harvard, and there's this, this thick binder full of these great heartfelt letters describing just almost daily what's going on with him, uh, and also his diaries in there. And you see, and I, and I went through there, and I could see how he started out this 22-year-old, very naive, idealistic guy, uh, slowly over the course of about nine months, as the war becomes more and more intense, he just starts to lose his idealism. He starts to basically lose his mind. He suffers shell shock. He just can't believe, uh, you know, the, the horror going on around him, where he, at first he, he delights in it and thinks it's going to make a man of him. It actually turns out to be his undoing, really, for the rest of his life. So he also was Harvard, uh, Harvard 18, so he was only a junior when he enlisted. Uh, and then there was George Alexander McKinlock also popped up in some different papers I had. Uh, just his, his, He just had a great story about how he was killed. His mother, one of Chicago's high society matrons, went over. She got the found the body, brought it over illegal, brought it back to the U.S. illegally. You weren't supposed to do that. And then how um, in the 20s, this Muriel McCormick, uh, this high, high society, she was the granddaughter of Rockefellers and Cyrus McCormick, she latched on to him and said she was spiritually betrothed to him. So I just couldn't avoid... Uh, it was just mm. too, too great a story showing how mm. he became a hero in afterlife. Now, as to the question of why did all these Harvard guys jump to enlist, um, 11,000 uh, overall from all eras, you know, probably dating back to maybe the 1890s, early 1900s. When I say 11,000, it doesn't mean just from, you know, those who were at Harvard at the time. Um, I, you know, what it was, it was, it was kind of a feeling that, uh, that's changed now. More than uh, maybe, say, the middle classes or whatever uh, in this country now, there was a feeling back then that it was their duty, uh, most of all, to uh, jump into this war. Um, and they had set up these preparedness camps uh, under the uh, auspice of Teddy Roosevelt in 1915 and 16, where uh, they, Roosevelt was one of the leaders of this so-called preparedness campaign, knew we were going to get in the war at some point, and wanted to train uh, people that could become officers when we did. We're going to need a lot of officers. So they spent about six weeks at these uh, preparedness camps uh, for two summers, and there was a large number of uh, Harvard men and uh, Ivy League men in general went to these camps. And some of them actually got uh, the commission as second lieutenants out of the camps, including uh, Redwood and uh, Richard Newhall. Um, and there was never any doubt that they were going to enlist if war came. It just, you know, going through their letters, it just never comes up that it's going to be an issue at all. Um, I just think that they just felt that they were, you know, the keepers of, of, of our culture, of our society, um, that they knew better than anyone else. But, of course, the caveat was that when they went in, they were going to be leaders. You know, they weren't going to be the rank and file. That was by virtue of their education their birth, whatever. Um, that's how they saw their place in the war. Uh, but they were eager to do it. They had to uh, actually move up graduation and the end of the semester in the spring of 1917 because the Harvard was emptying out. Everybody was rushing off to enlist. So they ended the, the semester about six weeks early, which is pretty amazing. I don't think that would happen today. Yeah. Um, 
yes, I mean the the descriptions um, that you have of of the boot camp, the preparedness uh, uh, camps. Um, you know, where they would have dummies. They would mm-hmm. practice on dummies, and it made me think of how these days they use video games. Huh. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they do, don't they? <laughs> you know, they are adapted that to, to what, you know, today's teenagers can do the best, I guess. They had dummies. They had wooden guns, wooden bayonets. They took long hikes. But they also, in, in the camp, like at Plattsburgh in 1916, they did actual maneuvers. So they moved it up a step. Um they had a much more vital bunch of uh, younger men. The first camp in 1915 they called the Tired Businessmen's Camp. These were guys who just wanted to get away from the wife for a few weeks and, mm-hmm. you know, go with their buddies and, you know, have manly outdoor activities. Uh, but they they would give them a problem to solve. So, you know, there's a trench over here. You had to get your men close to it and then attack it. And so it became uh, much more of an education process uh, in 1916. Uh, but, yeah, they didn't have a whole lot of equipment to work with. So, um, well, let's, tell us a little bit more about these these five men and what's. I mean, with each one of them, you. I mean, I know this is just a, a tease. We don't want you don't want right, to give it right. all away, obviously. Right. But um, but what were some of the things that I, these people jumped out at you when you were doing the research? But what were some of the things that that what did their stories teach? Um, they each taught something different. What what did their stories teach to them and, and that you want people to get from it, from the book? Well, the, the, main, and, the main and the strongest character, by virtue just of his personality and uh, the, the enormity of his papers, is Richard Newhall. Uh, he, was, he was older. Uh, he was 29 years old in 1917. So he had you know, six or seven years on, on the three younger guys. Uh, Redwood also was older. He was about 30 in 1918. But uh, Newhall was just, I, I always think of him as that, that famous Scroucho Mark, Marks quip of he'd never belonged to any club that would have him as a member. That's what Newhall was like that. He was basically at war with the Army from the first moment he got in it, but he's determined to stick in it anyway. He, he, you almost get that idea. He thought he could change the Army from within somehow. So he's always, uh, he's always kept etching about this and that, and why don't they do it this way? And it's, you know, and even he's like, I wish they could write the training manual so they were more entertaining. <laughs> yeah, he, he's just a guy who's at war with uh, not only the Germans but the United States Army. But at the same time, there's something to be taught from that is that he was a natural leader, um, despite his problems with the Army and the in, uh, institutions in general, I think. Um, you know, he he did his duty, and he was regarded by his men as a very, very good leader. He only had really one opportunity to lead him in combat, and he was he was shot very early on. But all his men said they really respected him more than any other uh, lieutenant they'd served under. Um, George Haydock was very young. He's 23 years old. He turned 23 on the ship going over to France, in fact, and he was insecure. Um, and he... He struggled much more than uh, the other four to to uh, really learn how to lead men. Um, it's it, some of his letters talk about you know you have no idea how hard it is to chew out some tough Texas hayseed and blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Some of these men were regulars. They served in the Philippines uh, or on the uh, Mexican border in 1916, so they knew the drill, but George didn't, and so it was a real struggle for months and months for him to get comfortable, to become secure with what he was doing. 
um, and if there's a lesson he imparted, and I won't give away the ending, um, is that he did become a man uh, that men were willing to lead or to have lead in combat. Um, he, he earned the respect of his men. He learned what he needed to do. He needed to provide for his men first, make sure they were comfortable before he was. And it was a very available uh, lesson for uh, anybody in that situation because it had to be daunting. You're 23 years old. You've lived this fairly cushy life. You don't really know the lower classes, although he wasn't super wealthy, you know, going to Harvard and everything. You know, they came from a fairly, you know, cushy, plush environment. Um, for William Otho Potwin or Bill Morgan, who also came from similar straits, his grandfather had been the uh, founder of the Chicago Varnish Company, sort of this post-Chicago fire industrial revolution went on. And so he was fairly fabulously wealthy. Went into the war with so much idealism, not really thinking uh, about what might happen to him over there. He writes letters aboard ship. Oh, is the music coming up? Yeah, we're... we're... Okay. Okay, we'll get, we'll get back to Bill Morgan when we come okay, back. Great. Okay, um, My guest is James Carl Nelson. His new book is called Five Lieutenants, The Heartbreaking Story of Five Harvard Men Who Led America to Victory in World War I. We'll be back with more. <laughs> we don't want to take a break. want you to keep on talking. <laughs> um, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Do you find yourself tearing pictures of rooms out of magazines? Do you watch certain movies and TV programs because of the homes they show? Are Sundays reserved for open houses? Then you are a home dreamer, and someday you will build or renovate your dream home. Steve Clip has spent three decades learning how to win at the dream home game. His show, Winning the Dream Home Race, can be heard every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Let Steve Clip help save you money and make you a winner. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about Harvard, Idealism, and War. With my guest, James Carl Nelson, his new book is called Five Lieutenants, 
the heartbreaking story of five Harvard men who led America to victory in World War One. And uh, James is regaling us with uh, with um, teases, at least, <laughs> of of, uh, of the five men um, that he writes about. So we were talking before the break. We were talking about William Otho Potwell Morgan. Yeah, Potwell Morgan. Morgan. Idealistic, uh, 22 years old, but also really not uh, a man of the world at all. Who is at 22? Uh, it's fairly rare. Naive. Uh, writes on the on the ship as he's going over to France. Letters that say, I, "I can't wait to stick a bayonet in a German. I can't wait to get in the trenches." All this stuff. Um, and he left behind a girlfriend, uh, Christiana Councilman. Uh, but what's interesting about that is they didn't really date that long. They didn't really know them uh, each other that well. But it was this feeling on Christiana's part of how wonderful it was to to send her man off to war for her. You know, there's all this romantic uh, era type stuff about that, and he's feel he feels more manly because he's the man being sent over to fight for his his girlfriend, and at that point, actually, his his fiance. Uh, but even her father, in a toast she gave or he gave to them when they they, uh, they finally allowed Christiana to uh, become betrothed raised his glass and said to the babes in the woods, you know, knowing that, you know, whatever's going to happen, uh, you're going to have a rougher time than you think you are. Mm. So he's separated from Christiana for a year, a uh, year and a half, really. And uh, his experience leave him dismayed, disillusioned, classic World War I, uh, more European, English or, or French or German, uh, much more disillusioned about the war than most doughboys coming back. Um and he suffered shell shock. Um, there's no other word about it. He, uh, it was something that was diagnosed by the British and called that by the British men who just sort of emotionally collapsed in the trenches. Uh, they invented the term and then uh, wouldn't allow, allow anybody to use it because everybody wanted to be shell-shocked at that point. You know? um, but it's pretty classic. It's just sort of a wearing away under shell fire. Uh, and then he endured the Battle of Cantini saw horrific things there, men walking around with an arm off. Uh, he would claim that he heard stories about during this sort of three-day siege, men were drinking their own urine out there because they couldn't get any supplies to or fro uh, mm-hmm. them. So, I mean, the tale there is, you know, try to go into things with more, your eyes more wide open, if you can. Um, moving on to George Redwood. He's a very funny guy, but he's enigmatic. Uh, he always was wanted to be a soldier. He grew up in a wealthy family in Baltimore. Um, he actually, when war broke out in 1914, wanted to enlist in the Canadian or British armies and go over and fight, but his mother dissuaded him. He worked as a newspaper man. Um, finally enlisted, uh, was sent into Company I at the 28th, and as I had mentioned before, became a, uh, a legend as a scout, as, a, as an intelligence officer. Um, and he was also very a very Christian man, um, but not in a sort of hairy hair shirt kind of way. He kept it to himself very quietly, knew himself very well. He was 30 years old by that point. Um, and he, uh, I guess I can tell it, he, he went into battle at Cantini, and he told people he'd been wounded a couple times early on during the battle, and he was getting dressing at one station, and he told somebody that he was intended to die with his company that day. And I'll just leave mm-hmm. it at that. Um, and George Alexander McKinlock, um, sort of another fabulously wealthy guy. Uh, his father owned the city electric system in Chicago, which supplied electrical supplies following the uh, Chicago fire. They had a big mansion in Lake Forest where it was the place to be. Didn't even attend school till he was 10 years old. He was mother, his mother's 
hat, the apple of her eye. Uh, she's a very kind of domineering figure in his life, you can tell. Um, and he, with, with uh, McKinlock, you get the sense that his parents were going to let him have his little adventure in the war, and then he was just going to come home and take over the business, but fate intervened. Um, but his military career was not really very exciting. He uh, was on staffs. He got staff jobs, and it's not plainly laid out, but it seems to be that he was favored simply because of his status mm-hmm. um, going into it. Um, and uh, the lesson you learned from McKinlock, uh, I don't know if there is one. <laughs> okay. sort of, he's a guy who let events carry him along maybe too much. Maybe that was it. Uh, he never really, he was unformed. He didn't really know what he wanted to do. He's always talking about, I'm, I'm, I'm in the machine gun battalion now, but I might want to be over here. And sort of, like I say, fate intervened and uh, maybe take, take more control of your own uh, uh, domain than he did. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a big deal for his mother to, for a, a mother, right, in those times to um, go to France and, and reclaim her son's body. Yeah, it was it was it was uh, verboten, as they say. Uh, there was a strict policy against. So there were a lot of civilians who did that. In fact, um, Willa Cather uh, went over and got her cousin's body, um, the one she writes about in one of ours. Um, but the army dissuaded it um, once it had happened, like once. But she had a lot of uh, higher up allies. Um, she was uh, very well connected. There's one letter in. Uh, Alexander's burial file that it, he, uh, the Pershing's sister has been CC'd on the letter. So, you know, it was in the loop. Pershing was involved because what happened was, all right, cat's out of the bag. Uh, <laughs> Alexander gets shot at Soissons. His body disappears for nine months, couldn't find the body. And there's this intense search going on. There's letters in this file. You've got to find this body. And it's, you know, the commander in chief expects it. So the pressure's being brought. And then she just goes, she first sent an, an envoy over there who had been uh, Alexander's football coach, in fact, to look for it. And he actually had a few bodies exhumed, although the, the Army resisted him on that even. And then she went herself. Uh, they asked her to be head of the Red Cross in France, so she, she leapt at it. And the legend is, as soon as she got to this little village, she walked right up to it, and it was his uh, burial place. Um, but, yeah, it was a no-no. In fact, his commander... Uh, his uh, commanding officer got in trouble uh, once it was learned that uh, the body had been spirited out of mm-hmm. France without anybody knowing. But yeah, it shows it shows who she was and what kind of family he he came from. You know mm-hmm. that, that that they're like, don't you know who I am? Kind of thing. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know. The- but still quite unusual for a woman in those days to be doing those kinds of things. Well, yeah, she was the one who was involved in his life, though. I mean, they're, they're like, right, right. there's like one letter from Alexander to his father. Mm-hmm. They, I don't think they were close. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, I think he was a fairly rigid man, you know, who let his wife handle up everything while he handled the business. You know? uh-huh. But she was a strong character, a strong woman, totally. And, she, and at the same time, she ran the the Red Cross canteen in Chicago during the war. So I mean, you know, she yeah. she was fairly selfless, although very wealthy. Um, it's not like she just she in one letter she says, you know, we didn't sit around reading novels all day. We, we mm-hmm. pitched it, you know, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she was strong in general. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, now it must have been interesting to write this while at the same time every day 
you must have been hearing, reading, or watching on the news um, various stories about wars going on in the present. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so I would imagine that you couldn't help but sort of contrast what you were writing about with how things were today. Right. Well, well you know, um, there there are parallels and there, and there are not parallels. But I mean, war is war. Number one, there's a there's a direct parallel. It's it's horrific when we send young men to fight it, and uh, many of them, if they do come back, come back broken. I mean, right now there's a lot of news about the, the spike uh, epidemic of suicides right. uh, among veterans, um, and the, you know, World War One. You sat in a trench mostly, and you might or might not be obliterated by a, a German, you know, artillery shell. I mean, you know, you're in Iraq or Afghanistan, you might or not be obliterated by an IED, you know, and, and it's that constant pressure of, is this one got my number, I think is a direct parallel that rolls through, you know, these two modern wars, or three modern wars, I guess we'd be in, um, and, and of course was an element in anywhere we've been in. Um, but, yeah, it's something that, you know, you try to find commonalities, uh, but in some ways there aren't commonalities anymore because we're not doing big uh, waves of infantry advancing on fixed positions anymore. I mean, that kind of war I don't see happening anymore because now we've got the weaponry to just take them out, you know. Um, so it's more, it's more surgical what we do these days. You know, even boots on the ground, it's surgical. It's black ops, it's that kind of stuff, more than it is massive assaults on any given position, which was what was going on in World War One and um, to, to a, a lesser degree, but in World War Two as well. Uh, the artillery fire followed by waves of infantry. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, know you mentioned um, War Horse before. Um, as being that was World War One, right? Mm, right. And um, did you you saw the movie? And I don't know. Did you see the play as well? I didn't see it. <laughs> you didn't see the movie? No, I haven't seen it yet. Oh I'm my not a big God! You have to see it. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> did you? Not I did, I did see content- the battle scenes in Down Abbey though, and they were they were quite well done. I thought so. Well, did you not? What did you purposely not see it because you didn't want to be contaminated by? A Almost different... in a way, yeah. Almost in a way. I, 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 you know, when I do write these books, I, I kind of, I stay away from that's from stuff that I might unconsciously, I hate to say it, plagiarize or be influ- too influenced by. You know, yes, yes, I, I really do. Um, that's why I, I stay away from anything when I'm writing. Uh, um, you know, my relationship books, my bad girls books, I did my own research. I don't want to be uh, right. even unconsciously influenced by something I might read. I want my own ideas. Yeah, um, you got to maintain a certain purity about it. So, I, yeah, I was, I was, I, I, I'm not a big cultural uh, junkie anyway. I'm, um, you know, I, I well, don't, I, I don't see the latest movies. I don't read the latest books. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you, now that this is finished, um, yeah. Uh, now you can in, indulge yourself and, and watch it. It really, I, I actually saw the play twice and I saw the movie once the day it came out, uh, because I'm all into horses. It's not, it wasn't oh, yeah, so right. much the war right. angle as it was that, um, <laughs> yeah. the horse angle. But, um, but anyhow, that, uh, and I think, you know, I think you'd enjoy now sort of comparing it to what you've already written and, and just, Kind of pick out certain things, but right. um, so okay. So that ends that. We can't talk about, sorry, about that. Yeah. But um, but you know, what about comparing shell shock oh, to um, to PTSD? 
Well, it's the same thing, isn't it? Um, I mean, that's just what they used to call it. You know, they called it shell shock. Right, right. Even though they weren't supposed to after a while. <laughs> um, but that, it's, it is, it's, it's post-traumatic. Oh, you got the music yes, coming up. Yes, yeah. post-traumatic okay, stress okay, is good. All right. <laughs> and we need to, um, to take a break now, um, take a little shock and go into a break. Uh, my guest is James Carl Nelson. Again, his book is called Five Lieutenants. The heartbreaking story of five Harvard men who led America to victory in World War One. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. We're going to be right back for the last segment of Dr. Carol's Couch, and we'll be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Very rarely does our news media spotlight some of the good things that are happening in our world. For more of these good stories and the people that are creating them, Tune in to Bread for the Journey with Mariana Cacciatore. Whether these good acts stem from personal tragedy or just a desire to help out and make this a better world in which to live, you'll find inspiration in every week's program. Connect with those that are doing something great for a change. Listen for Bread for the Journey, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking today about Harvard, idealism, and war. With my guest, James Carl Nelson, his book is Five Lieutenants, The Heartbreaking Story of Five Harvard Men Who Led America to Victory in World War One. Long title. <laughs> it's all very long. Sometimes. <laughs> um, and we were talking before the break about comparing um, the war that you write about, World War One, with uh, more recent wars and how... Um, you know, idealism isn't quite the same as it was in World War One. So tell us about that. Well, that came up in uh, The Remains of Company D, my first book, too. It was, uh, I had a line in there where I talked about uh, a lot of these young young guys, not not just Harbor guys or uh, the rich, or but just average Joes who uh, jumped in to enlist um, after uh, you know the war was declared on April 6, 1917. And I said they went down to the the, the stations on April seventh, nineteen seventeen, with the same uh, idealism and you know uh, patriotic sense as those 
on December 8th, 1941, and September 12th, 2001. You know, mm-hmm. um, there, there was that element then. Uh, and, there, and there was an element uh, following uh, 911 here, but not nearly as large uh, a turnout and, and uh, as World War One, of course, in World War One, they wound up with an army of four million men. They, we don't need armies that big now. But um, there is an element of that idealism or, or patriotism or uh, whatever you want to call it today. But it's we don't expect our culture and society, as a rule or, or at large, to, to do any sacrifice. We send. Uh, our representatives over there in the military, and uh, we just get on with our lives here. And that's one thing that's totally changed. The war is not really brought home to us, even despite all the media we have these days. We don't really feel the effects of the war unless we know somebody who's over there. Where uh, in past years, past wars, it's been more of a societal commitment to these efforts. And yeah. everybody, you know, from aluminum uh, runs and things like that during World War II, and they had the same kind of thing in World War I, uh, that everybody pitches in and does something. Um, that's, I think, totally changed. Um, and uh, and not I, really for the better. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't mean, think it is. I, I think people, if we're going to get in these wars, I think everybody needs to be aware of what's going on, and everybody needs to, to do some part in it. And, and I think what's happened, what happened, uh, the biggest turnoff, I think, uh, was the Vietnam War uh, left a, a bitter taste, you know, in, in the country's mouth as a whole. Was sort of a watershed moment for. Uh, we haven't had a draft since then. Um, it was, it's an all-volunteer army now, uh, Navy, everything. Um, and I think Vietnam was the turning point of just uh, people are, are more circumspect now about what kind of wars we get ourselves into. And and also, there's the feeling that well, I don't really want to go, uh, so somebody will go for me. Uh, and, but. I'm reading a book right now, uh, Where Men Win Glory, about Pat Tillman, the football player, mm-hmm. who uh, joined up uh, about, I think, about six months after 911. But it's something he seriously, seriously thought about for a long time before he said, you know what, I just can't sit here and, and not be a part of this simply because I don't, I don't think I want these guys doing the work for me. You know, he, that was just the kind of guy he was. Yes, and it's interesting because that is more like the spirit of these five Harvard guys that you write it about. Totally, it is. He, he took some of the burden on his own shoulders, um, and he he was a he was a deep thinker. He was he was not uh, just a typical football player. He was he was a guy who really felt stuff. Um, and of course, you know, his story ended tragically, being killed by friendly fire, and then and being the subject of a cover up about that. Yes, you yes. know. After they'd used him so much, you know, in their publicity about you know recruiting and things like that. Um, but you know, there are people like that, and there are still people. You know, that, when I was younger, I was like that. I was, I wanted to be a soldier when I was seven years old, and I think what happened was Vietnam got in the way and things slid off to another direction. You know, um, but there, there, there are still people out there who feel the call of military service. My boys are turning eighteen, and they have several friends who. Uh, Upon graduation in June, one's joining the Marines, one's joining the Army. You know, so and what did you have? Did they have any desire to join? Not, no, not that I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> have they read your books? Is that, is that... They've read my first one. I don't know about the second one, but uh, <laughs> they're uh, they're about, they're both going to go to the University of Minnesota. But uh-huh. you know, you never know what can happen with people. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, I don't. I, I certainly as a father. I mean, what would you I mean, tell them? If they, what if what if they did say? Well, um, I'd say uh, if you really feel strongly about this, and then you really something that you really want to do. I mean, I'm not going to stop them. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, as much as I'll worry about them, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to forbid them. Um, which is totally different from when when my brother and I were young, and you know, during Vietnam era, it, it was like, you know, basically, you know, most people didn't want to go at a certain point, you know. Um, but no, I, I wouldn't stop them. I mean, I, I think you know, the military can give you a lot of opportunities, and and I think if you are, which I don't have, but if you had a troubled child or just a child doesn't have any clue what he wants to do, maybe it's a little immature. I mean, it'll. Uh, it'll make you know you much more mature. Nothing else, and maybe get a handle on what you want to do in your life once you, mm-hmm. you know once you're out, or maybe stay in even. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, I don't know. Um, we got to we have to have a military, and uh, and these days I think you know we got a lot of uh, very good uh, individuals serving in the military. You know. Yes, and it is. I mean, as a contrast to what you were talking about before, when the whole country was more behind the people who went off to war. Um, now, people coming back, uh, well, not just now, but I mean, starting with Vietnam, as you were saying, um, there's such a different attitude, a less appreciative attitude. And, and Yeah. Well, I'll mention one thing, too, is that one other, one other element of uh, these, these men, the five lieutenants, when they, when they were going to enlist in the war, by virtue of their education, they had a much wider uh, spectrum of an education. They went in with the idealism of we're going to make the world better mm. through my small act, you know, my mm. my selfless act here. Uh, Newhall called it the wielding together of the great democratic love, democracy loving nations. I mean, so they had this very lofty ideal about what this war was about and what their purpose was in it. You know, mm-hmm. you don't really see someone going in. Uh, you know, even the average person going into World War One wouldn't think like that. They think like, well, this is going to be fun, it's going to be an adventure, uh-huh. and I'm going to be a patriot. World War Two probably the same. So they had defined enemies to defeat, you know. Uh, but it's interesting that to think about they had really thought this out and uh, did a lot of reading, and they were trying to turn the world around. And when it didn't happen after World War One, they were left with um, you know, only a couple survivors in the book, but they were left fairly dis- disillusioned. Newhall was disillusioned too. So. Yes, yes, and, and you know, thinking about it, it was called the Great War because, of course, at that time there was no idea that there was going to be a World War Two. There was no it was called two World yet. War One. <laughs> exactly, I know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is kind of interesting to think back on, and we well, yeah, they, they thought, well, here's the Great War, and this one, then it'll be over. You know, yes, this is the, yes. the war to end all wars, is what they exactly. call it. Exactly. Well, yeah. I want to get in the name again before we before we uh, stop before the show ends. Again, the title of the book, which you can buy. Wherever books are sold, Barnes and Noble online, Amazon wherever, Barnes and Noble online. Um, I, I particularly appreciate Barnes and Noble since it's one of the main bookstores left. <laughs> um, the name of the book again is called Five Lieutenants: The Heartbreaking Story of Five Harvard Men Who Led America to Victory in World War One. And the name of the author and my guest today, James Carl Nelson. So thank you, James, for, uh, you know, you can tell from just your interview, you're a great storyteller, and it's all true, all gleaned from real letters. And thank you for being on the show, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.